0: Hello, this is the Journal of American History Podcast for Spring 2019. My name is Benjamin Irvin, and I am the executive editor of the Journal of American History. On today's episode, we will explore law enforcement, the regulation of sexuality, and race relations in Los Angeles in the mid-20th century. We have a very special guest. Her name is Ann Gray Fisher. Anne is a 2018 doctoral graduate of Brown University. Her book, Arrestable Behavior, Women, Police Power, and the Making of Law and Order America is now under contract with the University of North Carolina Press. Our readers may know Anne as the assistant editor of the Journal of American History. She is responsible for the solicitation and production of our book reviews, and that's no small task. We publish 600 or more reviews every year. But Anne is also the winner of the 2018 Lewis Pelzer Memorial Award, given annually by the Organization of American Historians, to the author of the Best Graduate Student Essay. Anne's Pelzer-winning essay, Land of the White Hunter, Legal Liberalism, and the Racial Politics of Morals Enforcement in Mid-Century Los Angeles, appears in the March 2019 issue of the Journal of American History. Welcome, Ann. Hello. Also joining us today as guest host is Max Felker Cantor, Visiting Assistant Professor of History and African American Studies at Ball State University. A 2014 doctoral graduate of the University of Southern California, Max has published articles in the Journal of Urban History and the Journal of Civil and Human Rights, among other scholarly and popular outlets. Max himself knows a thing or two about law enforcement and social relations in 20th century California. His book, Policing Los Angeles, Race, Resistance, and the Rise of the LAPD, just rolled off the University of North Carolina Press in November 2018. Thank you so much for joining us, Max.
1: Thank you for inviting me to guest host, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation, And about your recent article, Land of the White Hunter, Legal Liberalism and the Racial Politics of Moral Enforcement in Mid-Century Los Angeles. And I wanted to start by just asking you to describe your interest in the subject and what got you interested in thinking about policing in Los Angeles and what you were hoping to accomplish with this article.
2: Well, thank you so much for joining me in this conversation, Max. You know, I was born and raised in Los Angeles, and when I started researching police practices, I knew that the LAPD would be an essential part of that story because of the LAPD's influence in police policy in post-war U.S. The thing is, though, that when I went to Los Angeles to conduct research, I really had no idea what to expect. So I was quite surprised when I found how central sexual policing was to mid-century LAPD work, how present, how live morals enforcement itself was for police officers, both from the brass, from leadership on the way down to rank-and-file police officers. There was a lot of debate happening among Los Angeles urban authorities and police officers about the role of morals enforcement, about the role of police officers in enforcing public order laws like vagrancy, disorderly conduct,
1: and loitering. Great. Well, the question I have from that is maybe to explain a little, what do we mean by morals laws? You know, it's in the title of your article. And what do you mean by morals laws? And then we can talk a little bit about your argument about the changes in morals laws and how that reflects changing views of sexuality and criminality in the 1950s.
2: So there's a lot of different ways to talk about morals enforcement. It's a very capacious category. One of the ways to think about morals enforcement is by the the nature of statistics that the LAPD was collecting in this period, particularly for FBI record keeping. And the LAPD itself was becoming very statistics-minded particularly in the post-war moment and under the leadership of Bill Parker, who I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute. So a lot of these statistics were broken into two categories. Part one crimes, which were typically the larger order, more violent crimes like murder, right, homicide, or part two crimes, which were lower order misdemeanors, which generally fell under the category of either petty crimes against the person like larceny, or the category of crimes against public order. These were typically gender-specific. So in this mid-century moment, the crimes against public order that police were most concerned about for men would perhaps be gambling. Right, Gambling was one of the most frequently charged public order offenses for men. Gambling and perhaps drunkenness but women were disproportionate targets of other public order crimes such as loitering, vagrancy when it was still constitutional, and disorderly conduct. So when I talk about morals enforcement, I'm talking about this broad category of overlapping laws that were pinned disproportionately on women for a wide range of behaviors that were thought to be non-normative, sexually deviant, which in this mid-century moment generally meant a woman who is having sex with a man she was not married to.
1: Great. Well, that's, you know, a really interesting kind of description of moral laws and how they play out in a kind of gendered fashion. And what that's raised for me, though, is that you make this kind of argument throughout the piece about not only gender, but how gender and race play together in moral law policing in the mid-century. And so how does that work together? Because you say women are targeted for criminality around certain types of behaviors, but it struck me that black and white women were not treated entirely the same in how their behaviors were policed, or at least there was a change happening in this mid-century moment. Can you explain that a little bit?
2: Absolutely. So, you know, we have to start at the ground level. Police officers on the street in this moment, say in the 1950s or early 1960s in Los Angeles, have these really broad misdemeanors, these morals laws, right, which are these overlapping laws that we just discussed, they have this whole arsenal of charges that they can pin on a woman just based on their observations of the woman's physical presence on city streets. So this could include, you know, the woman's appearance, the neighborhood in which she's being surveilled, the company that she keeps, right, Uh, her reputation in the neighborhood. All of these factors play into an officer's discretionary and discriminatory appraisal of whether or not a woman is offending public morals and this is deeply determined by women's physical appearance and by the police officer's racial identification of that woman and the thing that i found that i was really not expecting to find when i went into the archives in los angeles was that not only for the average police officer on the street But for urban authorities broadly in Los Angeles, there was a major shift that Mm -hmm. took place in this moment from the late 1940s into the early 1960s. There is a major racial shift happening.
1: In what sense? What do you mean there?
2: Yeah. So prior to World War II in Los Angeles, but also in other cities in the U.S., urban authorities were more concerned about the... Sexual morality and policing the sexual morality of white women. Uh, and this was because white women were seen as the cornerstone of the white moral order, which rested on patriarchal, segregated homes.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. So white women were sort of the virtue keepers of the white moral order prior to World War II. Their sexual deviation from these norms or their presumed deviation from the norms of domestic white womanhood was a real threat to the social order. And so urban authorities, particularly in Los Angeles, but in other cities, saw it as an urgent state requirement right, to police the presumed sexual practices of white women. This was less the case for black women because there's a large Literature on the presumed sexual deviance and the sexual excess of Black womanhood. Of course, these are deeply rooted myths in the history of sexual politics in the US, but they played out in material ways in police practices. Right? If we think of the ways that white women can only be defined and only have social meaning in contrast to other women, then Black womanhood was the most consistently and thoroughly imagined contrast to white womanhood. So if white women in this mid-century moment were upheld as sort of the virtue keepers of the domestic white social order, right, mm-hmm. this racially segregated, patriarchal social order, then if black women were presumed to be deviating from social norms, and that did not disrupt the white social order, right, it, it actually sustained the white social order. So what you see is police practices reflecting this, and urban authorities mm-hmm. in this pre-World War II moment, we're not as concerned about Black women's presumed sexual practices. And this bears out in the statistics, right? The number of arrests and the rate of arrests for women. But this also bears out in the newspapers and the press and political discourse, right? The police engage in a form of hostile neglect, both in Black neighborhoods and with Black women. And it was white women in this earlier moment who were the primary targets for police intervention, usually with the aim of achieving some kind of moral restoration or more rehabilitation.
1: Okay, great. And you're just talking there about a pre-World War II moment about the ways police are using their discretion and that kind of authority to police white women, whereas black women's presumed deviance didn't threaten the social order in the same way. And my question then is, what starts to happen in the post-war period to shift the ideas of morals, law, and, the, and policing of Black women and white women. Does that stay the same? You know you suggest in the article that that starts to change. Does that change come just from police deciding to use their discretion to police black women in a different way or white women in a different way? or is that related to morals laws changing as well? What's the transformation that's happening there between both morals law and police discretion changing as we move past World War II?
2: Right. So there's this incredible change that happens in the late 1950s and early 1960s. And it's a convergence of multiple changes happening simultaneously. These changes are urban, they're legal, and they're social political. At the urban level, what we're seeing in Los Angeles is refugees from the South moving to find a home in Los Angeles. So Los Angeles urban authorities, who are primarily white and Protestant, are reckoning with a growing population of black residents in the city. And this is compounded by the departure of many white families to the suburbs where they're taking advantage of segregated federal funding for home ownership in the suburbs. And this is a really important moment, too, as you've taught me, Max, that this is really a story about Blackness in this mid-century moment and white urban authorities' impulse to contain Blackness in Los Angeles. Because in this moment, Black people actually constitute a larger numerical population than Latinx populations in Los Angeles in this moment. And more than that, there's fewer neighborhoods in which Black people can live in Los Angeles than Latinx residents. So this really becomes a white urban authority preoccupation with what to do about the Black people in Los Angeles. So this urban migration and the white urban authority's preoccupation with the increasing Blackness of Los Angeles converges with a legal trend toward liberalism Mm -hmm. in the late 1950s and early 1960s. There's a growing mobilization of civil libertarians and liberal reformist lawyers and judges who say that the law should not be determining morals, right? So sex between consenting adults should be legal. For example,
1: Oh, okay. Well, Mike, so so the morals policing you were talking about pre-war, there's a response from this kind of civil libertarian group, judges and lawyers, to say, we should not be policing or using the law to target those moral deviants anymore.
2: Absolutely. And this is coming out of many different traditions. This is coming out for sure from a queer tradition of the growing movement to decriminalize homosexuality. But this is also coming out of a very staunchly heterosexual tradition too, where therapists, psychiatrists, and social scientists alongside these liberal lawyers are arguing that quote-unquote healthy, well-adjusted marriages cannot have mature, normal sexual relationships if sex itself is criminal. You know, of course, all of these social scientists and these lawyers who are mobilizing around relaxing morals laws are operating in a sort of a post-Kinsey moment too, right? Alfred Kinsey famously showed Americans how many people were having sex outside of marriage, right? Which would make them criminals. And so an increasing number of reformers are saying that sex laws create law-abiding lawbreakers, creates this class of, quote unquote, law-abiding lawbreakers. And the question then to sort out among a wide range of Mm -hmm. lawyers, social scientists, and everyday people is who is a, quote unquote, law-abiding lawbreaker, whose practices should be decriminalized, and who is a criminal. Right. Who remains a criminal in the courts? This plays out in a race neutral way or in a way that decriminalizes the sexual practices of white women specifically.
1: But not black women.
2: So the interesting thing is that black women are not actually named. As courts and legislatures are trying Mm -hmm. to rewrite sex laws, right, as all this reformism is coming to bear on liberal courts and legislatures, they're trying to revise these morals laws. And black women are not specifically named as enduring targets of legitimate policing, right, or as legitimate targets of police intervention. Mm Mm-hmm. But the real question, when, for example, the Supreme Court of California or the California State Legislature in 1961 and 1962 really sit down to hash out how they are going to police sexual practices on the streets of Los Angeles and in the homes of Los Angeles, what they're really asking is how much discretion should police legitimately exercise on city streets? Mm -hmm. To what extent can police observe a woman and decide that they are going to make a lawful arrest, right? Or not?
1: Okay. So what I'm hearing is we have these multiple changes. You have a kind of racial demographic change in the city. At the same time, you have changes in ideas of moral law and that there's a kind of reform of morals law directed at these law-abiding law breakers, and the sense that they should not be criminalized. But it's at the same time that the city, at least in Los Angeles, is a growing black population. And so that seems, from what you've said and what you present in the article, to, to kind of create a problem for police and for reformers, right? Where they say, we want to reform morals law, but we don't actually want to give up all control over who that moral law applies to, right? And so that's where your point about discretion becomes so important. And then the police become empowered, I think, in this moment, as you say in the article, to make the decisions on the streets, or is it just the police officer on the street or at the level of the chief, you know, Bill Parker's in power, where they start to make the decision of who's violating those moral laws once they're reformed.
2: Totally. This is a complete collision of interests, right? On the one hand, you have urban authorities wanting to contain Blackness. On the other hand, you have this large-scale mobilization for the relaxation of sex laws, of morals laws. Mm -hmm. So that's a real collision of interests. The Los Angeles Police Department, leadership down to rank and file, they see these liberalizing morals laws. They see the changes that are being made to morals laws as assaults on their authority, right? Mm -hmm. What Bill Parker called a handcuff, right? Handcuffing the police. If the police can no longer observe a woman and make a lawful arrest as Becomes the reality in 1961 and 1962 as these laws are changing. Right, if the Mm -hmm. police can no longer simply observe a woman and make a lawful, a legitimate arrest, and that is handcuffing the police, they can no longer exercise their discretionary authority on city streets with any woman that they identify as sexually suspect. Mm -hmm. For police, that is a real constriction of their authority, and this is why studying the ways that women are policed Mm
1: -hmm.
2: is really valuable because it makes visible the stakes for police officers to exercise their authority, right? And it makes visible how important police officers' discretion is for them to justify their own power. And it's another reason why studying morals enforcement is so fascinating because this is at the heart of police power, right? Mm -hmm. The power of police officers to enforce broad, vague laws around public order, that's crucial to police officers' power on city streets, right? The power of police to define social order and to identify supposed violators of that social order, it's crucial to the enforcement work and the state power that police exercise on everyday streets. right. So there's this collision, right, between police officers' expression of their power and discretionary authority as these laws are being moralized. And at the same time, the city really needs to contain urban blackness. So what you see happening is that as these morals laws are being reformed and relaxed, increasingly police are using their discretion to decriminalize white women's sexual practices. You know, we even have one police officer on record saying, thanks to these liberal reforms, white women are free from police intervention. But even as these laws said that straight sex between people who are not married cannot be legal... These laws at the same time upheld police officers' discretionary power to target and identify offenders of public morality. Okay. And it was in this way, this race-neutral avenue, that enabled police to identify new ways to enforce morals laws in a way that would help them to consolidate their own power.
1: Okay. And how did that play out? Yeah.
2: So that played out by police shifting their priorities and their focus from the policing of white women to the policing of black women. And you can see this is very stark in material terms in rates of arrests and who is arrested. For this period, the LAPD has a pretty good set of statistics. So we can see the racial and gender breakdown of who's being arrested After this 1961-1962 moment, white women's arrests plummet while Black women's arrests dramatically increase. Okay. Bill Parker, in this moment, both incentivizes police departments to make as many arrests as they can in Black neighborhoods, but he also engages in a rhetorical campaign which links prostitution, particularly in Black neighborhoods, with urban disorder and criminality. This is actually a meaningful shift, a meaningful departure from earlier practices.
1: So we were talking about the shift, the kind of interesting shift about the ways you have kind of decriminalization of white womanhood and their non-marital sexual practices, the same time that we have then rising arrest rate for black women, which raises, for me, a number of questions for you, you know, that your article really explores and delves into is that one is, it's also kind of surprising, perhaps, that black women's arrests would not have been high to begin with, right? And that's what we talked about at the beginning, but that then black women's arrests actually increase and white women's arrests decrease in this 1960s period. And you kind of suggest that even as these liberals were hoping to reform moral laws that they have illiberal results. And my question, perhaps there is also, are these just unintended consequences of the law that are changing? That oh, we change morals laws, decriminalize white women's non-marital sex, and then what ends up happening is black women get criminalized? Or is there also something about liberalism and these shifting laws? Um, that result in this unequal policing.
2: I think a really important takeaway is how compatible liberalism is with consolidating police power, right? And the fact that white women can be essentially decriminalized in the same moment that black women are subject to intensifying forms of policing, This is really an extension of a longer history of Black women in Black neighborhoods in the urban North and West in the U.S. Black neighborhoods after emancipation in the North and West were the historic sites of so-called vice districts. After the progressive era, red light districts, so-called red light districts in urban centers were shut down by moral reformers and pushed by police and politicians into Black neighborhoods, right? So Black neighborhoods sort of became the site of the new red-light districts in the early 20th century. And this endures into the moment that we're discussing in the 50s and 60s. And so Black neighborhoods were historically the sites of vice. This meant that the Black refugees who came from the South to Los Angeles confronted an enduring paradox in policing in the U.S., right? That Black neighborhoods can both be a site of under-policing, of police neglect, mm-hmm. right? And at the same time, over-policing, right? The hostile and and violent interactions of police with Black residents. And right? so this under-policing meant that historically and through the 1950s and 1960s, white men would go into Black neighborhoods as slummers, right, for pleasure, right. to engage in gambling, drinking, commercial sex. And police would use their discretionary authority to look the other way, right? This is a key example of the way that police under the social practices of Black people in their neighborhoods,
1: And this is what you refer to, I think, in a quote, the white hunter, right, white men coming into black communities. And I want to talk about the response of African-American communities later. But this interesting moment when white men are able to come into these vice districts and aren't policed in the same way.
2: Yes, these are the so-called white hunters. And they're not policed in the same way. And generally, police look the other way because this is the presumed site of vice and lawlessness in Los Angeles. You know, up until this moment, Black neighborhoods were typically presumed to be degraded sites of lawlessness. But Black neighborhoods were also thought to be, you know, perfectly natural sites of deviance and lawbreaking in the urban landscape. Perhaps even a desirable site of sexual excess in order to maintain an orderly, respectable white city. But in the post-war period, as Black populations increase, police officers in particular are concerned with how to intensify their targeting of these neighborhoods in order to contain Black populations. And so when morals laws are relaxed and are reformed in this moment, that becomes a key opportunity for LAPD authorities like Bill Parker Mm -hmm to take the the historic vice that had been imposed on black neighborhoods, right? And to use that as an excuse, as an, a justification to enforce liberalized morals laws, which still offered police the permission to enforce public order, right? Police were able to use these new liberalized laws as an opportunity to redirect their priorities toward Black neighborhoods, right? So Black neighborhoods, which had been historic under-policed, could now also be over-policed. There was that enduring tension of hostile neglect and aggressive enforcement. And so in this mid-century moment, as white women's presumed sexual practices are being decriminalized, we're seeing a moment of the intensification of these morals enforcement on
1: black neighborhoods
2: and black women for sex offenses in particular.
1: Great. Well, that's really interesting, that shift in the way you can have a relaxation of moral laws, but within this context of policing racial demographic change, vice districts, and black women's non-marital sexual practices, where they get then to be targeted by the police more heavily. It's a really interesting way that this relaxation plays out, that the police get released to then police black women in new ways. The thing that that raises, given some recent attention by scholars like James Foreman Jr. in his book, Locking Up Our Own, which won the Pulitzer Prize, about African-American responses to what they perceive as either discriminatory morals policing, or in some cases, not enough morals policing, it seems like. So how does that play out in Los Angeles? How does the black community respond in this moment to relaxed morals laws that actually enable the police to target their neighborhoods in an even more aggressive fashion.
2: After 1961, 1962, when these laws were relaxed and police practices shifted, Black residents certainly recognized that there was a widening disparity, right? There was an increasing inequality in the ways that white and Black women were being policed. So Black residents certainly noticed that. And the Black press is full of quotes from columnists saying, white women are certainly engaging in sexual practices, but they're not being policed while Black women are.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And there's a variety of responses to this. Black residents have been grappling with what to do about the fact of their neighborhoods being these urban sanctioned sites of vice. Black residents had grappled with that for decades in the early 20th century. How do we reckon with the fact that we are both under-policed and over-policed, right? Or, or as Joe Trotter says, right, underprotected and over-policed, what we see is a range of activisms, which are intensifying in this moment of civil rights mobilizations. As you note, in reference to the foreign, there are certainly middle-class Black residents mm-hmm. who demand greater police attention to vice in their neighborhood. They want police to basically clean it up. And groups mobilize, a group of middle-class businessmen and professionals in the late 1950s and early 1960s mobilized, demanding that police enforce laws as strictly as possible against sexually profiled black women in their neighborhoods and they also agitate successfully for stiffer jail sentences and fines so this activism is definitely alive and well and and this is an enduring tradition there's of course a lot of different reasons that we could talk about why Black businessmen and other professionals are organizing for more police in their neighborhoods and particularly more sexual policing in their neighborhoods. And of course, we could talk about it in terms of the history of respectability and the centrality of respectability to 20th century Black politics. But what I've found in my larger work is that Black residents have been consistently demanding respectful, dignified police protection in their communities. And very often, the only way that they can actually gain traction for those demands is by simply asking for more police.
1: Right. And so that's an interesting kind of moment because you get these groups saying, Yes, we'll bring the police into black neighborhoods, police vice in our neighborhood. And that's one of their only choices. Right. And then they get aggressive policing. And so there's that under policing and over policing moment. And what that also, I think, leads to, if we can go in that direction now, is the police ratchet up their targeting of black women but it also leads to discontent with sections of the black community, too. And this is where I was so struck by your argument, which is so interesting, that morals policing then also contributes to growing urban unrest and in particular the Watts riot. Yes.
2: So I had mentioned earlier, right, that there is this growing divide between white women and black women in the way that they're policed in this moment. Black middle-class black residents are agitating for increased policing of sexually profiled women in their neighborhood. But what we're also seeing is that there are a lot of residents who see that white women's presumed sexual practices are being decriminalized, and they really want to know why black women should be harassed and targeted by police.
1: Right. Why are they getting arrested at more rates?
2: Right. Why are more black women getting arrested and white women are getting less arrested? Right. (laughs) Uh, And to be clear, right, a lot of people think that this is about women who are actively engaging in commercial sex. And that is true to some extent. But the archives are brimming with stories of women who are simply walking down the streets and getting pulled over by police. One story that really struck me was a black woman walking down the street to a store to get a stroller for her son. She's a school teacher and police identify the way that she's dressed as sexually deviant, right? (laughs) She's wearing a classic early 1960s outfit of, you know, they say a large white handbag. This was sort of an identifier of engaging in sexual commerce, right? She was wearing short capri pants, but the fact that she was black and walking in her neighborhood was proof enough for the police that she was a legitimate police target. So two plainclothes officers ran up to this woman, said she was under arrest for prostitution, and grabbed her by the arms. This is terrifying for a black woman to be walking down a black neighborhood and to be immediately grabbed by two white men. They do not identify themselves mm-hmm. as police officers. She does not know why she is under arrest. It's a very traumatic experience. She starts to scream. She grabs onto a car antenna to try to pull herself away from the plainclothes officers who she didn't know at the time were officers. Finally, they push her into the backseat of their car, and as they're driving to the police station, they assail her with racial expletives and slurs. Right. So this is a classic case of Black women simply being sexually profiled for being in their own neighborhood.
1: Right. And it seems to also raise the point that what this increased policing did is it led to the concerns that white men and white police officers could still come into black neighborhoods without repercussion. Right. And so there's that double move going on where black women are getting arrested. And then these white plainclothes officers who could have just been any white man. Right. The so-called white hunter are also engaging in these practices that raises tension, it seems like.
2: Totally. The line between white hunters and white police officers was porous, right? They both exercised the same power to move freely through these spaces. They both observed Black women as sexually suspect and sexually profiled, right? And they both enjoyed a lack of accountability within these neighborhoods. But what's so interesting about this moment is that, and for example, the woman who I had just discussed, her arrest, right? What's happening in the early 1960s is that crowds are starting to form. People are starting to take note of the ways that women are being policed and they do not like it. Mm. So we have in the archives, there's a number of different episodes where women are being arrested and increasingly crowds are forming to either Prevent the arrest of that woman, to holler, make that police officer take his hands off that woman. These are often men, right? So, this is not quite a feminist argument against the ways that women are being policed. In some cases, it's quite patriarchal, right? You know, Black men are mobilizing to protect Black women from the police in their neighborhoods. And this is happening more Mm -hmm. and more in Los Angeles. And it's happening more and more because the decriminalization of white women is making the criminalization of black women more visible.
1: That's fascinating. That's, you know, a really fascinating way of putting it. And it was really interesting to me to read that argument you make. And it strikes me at the growing crowds and the concern around the arrest of black women, especially vis-a-vis the under arrest, if we call it that, of white women in this same period, mm-hmm. is a real key factor. I mean, in, in in what you say in the article, to the tensions that lead to the Watts riots. Can you talk a little bit there about why that's so important and how that morals policing in black neighborhoods ends up contributing to Watts?
2: Yes, sexual policing did not play a direct role in Watts, but there were a number of violent clashes between Black residents and police in the months leading up to Watts. And sexual policing also plays an explicit role in the outcome of Watts. So first I'll just talk about the lead up to Watts. Watts was not the first eruption of communal violence in Los Angeles in the early 1960s between black people and police. There were a number of collisions leading up to that moment. One of the biggest weekends of violence in 1964 takes place on the same weekend, a major, highly publicized crackdown on vice in a Black neighborhood. And it was coordinated across many different departments, of course, coincided with an election year. And so this weekend in 1964, when there is at least three reported incidents of Black residents resisting arrest or interfering with police arrest, throwing rocks or bottles at police. And so the following Monday, after this weekend of violence, a community organizer gives a press conference at City Hall to talk about what had happened, because this was one of the most violent weekends between Black residents and police to date. And in his press statement at City Hall, this community organizer lists morals enforcement and lists the racial inequality of the ways that morals law enforcement is being policed as a key factor in that weekend of violence, right? So he says, you know, the community knows that vice and gambling and prostitution are participated in by other communities which are not being policed. So the black community responds you know, with anger and frustration when police come and crack down in Black neighborhoods.
1: So that's a really interesting story about the ways a Black community member is voicing that disproportionate and unequal morals policing is part of a real community grievance. And so I know you mentioned that even though Watts itself is not sparked by an incident of morals policing that we really can't understand the discontent in the community in 1965 when Watts erupts in communal violence without understanding this history of discriminatory morals policing. Is that correct? And I'd like to hear your thoughts on that.
2: Absolutely. And you can see this story in other cities as well. Like Detroit is a great example. And of course, morals policing was one factor, one trigger within a galaxy of discrimination and oppression and exploitation that Black residents were experiencing and responding to in the early 1960s. But it is a really powerful one, uh, particularly because the combination of racially charged policing, (laughs) racially discriminatory policing, and the presumption of Black sexual deviance illuminates the matrix of oppression, right? And illuminates the many forms of disenfranchisement and degradation that Black people were protesting and resisting in this moment. So it was a very powerful, all-encompassing form of Mm -hmm. degradation and oppression that Black residents were refusing to legitimize and by resisting police intervention black residents were saying that the ways that our community is policed is not legitimate and it's purely hypocritical right when white women are not being policed in the
1: same way right and so there's that kind of moment why it's so important to look at as you say in your article at morals policing around black women and the and the non policing of white women, and that it's this really important context to the Watts riots and communal violence. And then you also start to suggest that even though you have the Watts moment, morals policing doesn't go away after it either.
2: Oh, no. After Watts, urban authorities double down on the aggressive morals policing that had triggered this urban communal violence in the first place. And you see them actually invoking Watts to talk about why we have the DA, the Los Angeles district attorney, saying that the Watts riots supply the proof that Los Angeles needs aggressive morals law enforcement. This is a really important turning point where urban authorities start to connect violence and the prevention of violence with intensified morals policing. The logic that aggressively enforcing low level misdemeanors is an important way to contain violence and to prevent larger order crimes. Of course, this sounds to me like broken windows policing
1: Mm -hmm.
2: and police authorities are slowly working their way toward that logic. Of course, they have to go through the, <laughs> the carnival of the 1970s to get to broken windows policing. But here we can see the earliest glimmering of this logic that aggressively enforcing public order misdemeanors is an important way to contain violence within Black neighborhoods and later, you know, within historically white downtown districts as well.
1: Right. Well, that's that's fascinating. In that kind of lead up, that you the argument you make in that morals policing serves many ways as a a deep historical foundation for broken windows policing. And so that's the kind of one takeaway from the article that I really came away with. So this is a fascinating article. And what I'd like to conclude with is to just ask you a little bit about where you see this work fitting in with this growing. Literature on policing and the concern with mass incarceration, and what you think you're, you know, by like focusing on race and gender, and in this case, morals policing, what that adds to our understanding of policing in this era.
2: Sure. And I'm so excited about the literature. I'm so excited about your book, Max. And I'm so excited about the many different directions that the literature is taking, particularly looking at the militarization of police officers, the intersection of U.S. police and empire. So there's a lot of really important work happening, but I think that centering women and centering race and sex and gender teaches us a number of different lessons. First, sexual policing, as we said, makes police police discretion visible. And I really think that police discretion is the crux of police power. How much discretion police get to exercise is a really important index of how much authority and how much power police have on the streets. So if we want to track the contests, the debates, the struggles around police power, we couldn't do worse, right, than looking at morals enforcement and the debates around how police get to enforce these really vague purely discretion-driven laws. Mm -hmm. Another really important point is the continuum between police discretion and police violence. While state violence is not a central feature of this particular article, one important point that the ways women are policed can uniquely make visible is the contradiction of policing itself. Police are often invoked as a form of state protection. But when we look at the history of the ways that women are policed, when we look in particular at the ways that white women and black women are policed, that police protection is more often experienced as police predation. And so by putting women at the center of a police history, we're forced to reckon with the contradiction of the purpose of police in U.S. cities, And with the ways that the same laws can be enforced to deliver racially unequal outcomes. Right? That's a really crucial contradiction. And that's a really crucial result of the contradiction of the ways that police are experienced both as uh, forms of protection and forms of predation, right? That women can both simultaneously be shielded from state coercion and police intervention while at the same time be aggressively targeted. And this emerges from the enforcement of the very same laws. This is something that we need to reckon with, not only when we think about how women are policed, but more broadly when we think about the complexities that emerge out of the ways that laws are enforced. And how much power are we going to give police to determine the ways that these laws are enforced? That's a question that we need to reckon with. And then we can think through when we center women in a history of police in the urban U.S.
1: Great. Well, I think that's exactly right. And I think that what your point there raises is there's a lot we can learn both about the history of policing, by centering women, as well as thinking about how we view the police in American society more broadly, and that we can start to see the ways police power is full of all sorts of contradictions. And so I want to thank you for this wonderful article and it's really thought-provoking, and I really am looking forward to your larger work that will be coming out at some point in the near future.
2: Well, and thank you so much, Max. I'm so grateful you took the time to talk to me about this article. You've been a model and a mentor, and I'm really grateful that you took the time
1: to talk.
0: Well, thank you very much. This has been the Journal of American History podcast for spring 2019. Our host has been Dr. Max Felker Cantor, visiting assistant professor of history and African-American studies at Ball State University and author of Policing Los Angeles, Race, Resistance, and the Rise of the LAPD. Our guest has been Dr. Anne Gray Fisher, visiting assistant professor of history at Indiana University, assistant editor at the Journal of American History, and winner of the 2018 Lewis Pelzer Memorial Award. Dr. Fisher's article, Land of the White Hunter, Legal Liberalism and the Racial Politics of Morals Enforcement in Mid-Century Los Angeles, appears in the March 2019 issue of the Journal of American History. Thank you, Max and Ann.